Well, our scripture passage for today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And I do have that on the screen for us, and would love for us to read that together as a congregation. And so let's lift our voices uh, nice and loud, and we're going to read these verses together. So here we go. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, this is God's word for us to study today. I have one quick question for you just to get us thinking about this passage. Uh, Do you ever feel sometimes in life that you don't measure up? Maybe there's people around you, maybe a coach or a parent or a boss. It's like, no matter what I do, it's never good enough. And so you can come across feeling discouraged, right? Because you do your best and you're like, ah, I can't measure up to the standard. Well, when we think about that in terms of our relationship with God, we're going to dig into this passage today. And if you ever have had that feeling, even in your relationship with God, I just don't measure up. Well, I have some news for you today. That feeling is going to get worse. I'm sorry, it's not much of an introduction, but I just got to be real with you. As we look at this passage and as we go throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the feelings of our own um, ineptness, ineptitude is like, wow, I just don't measure up. So you guys enjoy the day. Um, Thanks for coming. (laughs) No. Along with that, though, as we think about our relationship with God, how great he is and what he demands from his law, we're also going to feel, I hope, and you will know, a great sense of relief because there is one who does measure up on your behalf. And if you hide yourself in Jesus by faith, then when God looks at you, he no longer sees our shortcomings, our sins, our rebellion. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And that brings great relief. And so this life really isn't about us. It's about what Jesus has done on our behalf and the value and the love and the mercy and the grace that he's given to us. All right, so that's kind of where we're going today. We're going to talk today about three questions about God's law uh, from Jesus' teaching, and I hope to give some um, adequate answers today as we walk through this. So we've been in the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, Jesus' teaching, and we're going through bit by bit. So if you're just uh, joining us, uh, that's what we're doing. We're learning directly from Jesus' teaching. All right, so here's the first question. What is the nature of God's law? Jesus addresses that right out of the chute here in verse 17 and verse 18. What is the nature of God's law? So when we use the phrase God's law, we're really, in our vernacular, we would say we're talking about the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew scriptures. So Jesus uses the phrase here in verse 18, and we're going to start with 18 and go back to 17. 
Truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Then in verse 17, he uses the phrase law or the prophets. That's just a catch-all term. That's short form for the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament, we would say. Okay? So Jesus is addressing that. What we learn in verse 18 is that God's law, God's word is enduring. It is enduring. He says, not the smallest part of God's law will pass away until all has been accomplished. And he uses a, a little um, a illustration there. He says, until the, the, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so uh, here's what Jesus is talking about. The, the verbiage here originally, uh, in the original, is not one iota shall pass from the law. That would be the equivalent of the Hebrew. That's the Greek letter I, iota. The Hebrew letter is yod, and it's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's sort of like an elevated comma. You take that comma and you put it up in the air, boom. All right? So that's yod. So that's the smallest letter. Not the smallest letter, not even the yod will pass from the law of God until it is accomplished. And then when he says not even the smallest stroke of the letter shall pass, this here is the Hebrew word or Hebrew letter bait, which is B. And so on that little end, that little tail on, where it's circled there, that's like the smallest stroke. That's what separates it or distinguishes it from the Hebrew letter cough, for instance, which is the like K or C sound. And so that's the distinguishing mark. And that just that little stroke at the end, he says, not even that will pass from the law. We would say something like, you know, dotting your I's and crossing your T's. That would be uh, an equivalent in our language. So Jesus is saying every uh, I is dotted, every T is crossed there in, in the scriptures, and it will all come to fulfillment. And so he's elevating the understanding of the word of God and God's law, that it ought to be held in reverence. It is sacred. It is from the very mouth of God, we are told in 2 Timothy 3, 16. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, God's law will not pass away. This means to go out of existence. And we learn in 2 Peter 3.10 this, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So the earth will pass away to give way for the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21, read ahead, it's awesome, okay? And the law will not pass away until all is accomplished. So there's an enduring nature to God's word and God's promises. Other similar passages, Luke 16, 17. Jesus says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Can you imagine that? It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than it is for the law of God to go out of existence. That's quite an analogy, isn't it? Because we always consider uh, um, creation to be enduring. But he's saying, no, it will all be wrapped up one day, but the law of God will endure. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands. And what's the last word there? Forever. All right, so this is the scriptures. What Jesus is doing here for us is he's 
affirming the authoritative source of the scriptures, which is God himself. The Bible is written by men, but authored by God, if you want to think it that way. And it is enduring in its authority. And so the reason that people throughout the millennia have made such a big deal out of the Bible is because it is from God himself. It has an authority over our lives. We're to study and to learn and to do the word of God. This is part of the reason why uh, one of the core values of our church, probably the central core value, is the authority of Scripture. It's why we teach from the Bible. We believe it's from God. We believe that there's an, a, a binding nature to it to it in terms of its authority over our lives. And we want to learn from the word of God. As Jesus said earlier, we want to be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want to know more of God, and I do that through his word. Robert Utley, in his commentary on this particular section, says, the point is that the Old Testament is significant in all its parts. Even its most seemingly insignificant parts were from God. Yet the Old Testament was completely fulfilled in the person, work, and teachings of Jesus Christ. So what this practically means is this. Uh, in my own personal Bible reading time, um, I've been reading through the, the first five books of Moses. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I'm in Numbers now. So you know in Leviticus and Numbers when you skip all over all those laws about like mildew and, you know, uh, lepers and, and all the genealogies like, dude, can I just get on to the next passage? That's Scripture. That's from God. It's there for a reason. It's there for a reason. And the ultimate reason is it all points forward to Christ, whether a direct fulfillment or uh, prefiguring Jesus in some sort of way. Okay? So, what is the answer to this question? What is the nature of God's law? Well, the nature of God's law is it is authoritatively and enduringly binding. Okay? We're going to delineate a couple of things here in just a moment, but that's the basis starting in verse 18. So, just in a practical way, if you're looking for something to build your life on, um, self-help videos on YouTube can be helpful, but not a great foundation for the rest of your life, okay? So, go to the scriptures and build your life on the scriptures, not on some sort of product that someone is selling on social media and, and telling you how to live your life. Go to the scriptures, all right? The Bible, God's word, is enduringly authoritative and helpful to help us know how God wants us to live. All right, here's a second question that we'll answer today. What is Jesus' relationship to God's law? Well, he states it for us plainly, first of all, negatively, and then he states it positively. Verse 17, don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. Negative way of answering that question. Positive way of answering the question, I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. So let's talk about these. So he says, don't think, don't suppose, don't presume, don't imagine that when I've come along that I'm part of a completely brand new program where we're scrapping the previous program of God and I'm going to do my own thing. He's saying, that is not my mission, that is not my uh, connection to God. So don't suppose that. Don't suppose that I came to abolish, as I wrote down from one of my sources here, the word abolish means to completely invalidate something which has been in force. 
So Jesus is essentially saying, I'm not scrapping everything in the, in the, the Hebrew uh, scriptures. I'm not scrapping the old covenant in the way that you think that I'm doing that, okay? And so then he says, um, he says, I've now come to fulfill. I'm not abolishing, I'm fulfilling. I'm not invalidating. I am completing the law and the prophets. This word fulfill, again, as I copied down here, means to give the true or complete meaning to something. Well, that's exciting. So I go through the, the, the Old Testament. I'm like, wow, this is all pointing to someone. And Jesus is saying, yeah, me. That, that's exciting. This is all moving somewhere. This is all pointing towards someone. This all has its culmination in someone. So we read the Old Testament like, man, I can never measure up to that. I'm sort of like the Israelites. I fall short. I fail. I do well. And then I fail again. Man, is there any hope for humanity at all? Yes. His name is Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the prophets. He's the fulfillment of the types and and the prefiguring in the Old Testament. He is Jesus. And the point of the Old Testament is Jesus the Christ. So just as Jesus, or was declared of Jesus at his baptism, remember back in chapter 3, verse uh, 17, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God made it plain and clear. This is the one. This is your savior. Trust in him. And so Jesus is the apex of God's promises through the centuries. Jesus isn't bringing a brand new way to God, divorced from everything that God had commanded and promised through his word in the past. Jesus is the goal of everything in God's word. And so he says, I've not come to abolish, I've come to fulfill, to complete, to bring the full meaning to the Old Testament. Let me give you some examples here. So Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, first of all, in his birth. So uh, we'll study this at Christmas time, but in Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6, Matthew tells us that um, Jesus' birth in the little town of Bethlehem was foretold. And so he was born in Bethlehem. That was written in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, approximately 700 years before Jesus came. All right, so start to pay attention to these things. God is laying out a roadmap towards the Messiah, all these arrows pointing to who the Messiah would be, and Jesus fulfilled that. Not only that, but his parents, Mary and Joseph, are from the line of David. The King David in Israel, a very significant figure. Lots of promises given to David that he would always have a, a person from his uh, line, family line, on the throne of Israel. And so you have Mary and Joseph being from the line of David. Very significant. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 also says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Jesus was born as a Jew. He, his, his parents and himself were faithful to the uh, rules and regulations of the Old Testament. They were faithful in Judaism. For instance, Joseph and Mary offered up the prescribed offerings uh, for Jesus and, and Mary's uncleanness after um, Jesus was born. This is Luke chapter 2. You can read this. They went to the temple and they made the prescribed sacrifices. He was born under the law. 
All right? Not only would Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets in his birth, but also in his life. We've already read in verse, chapter 3, verse 15, uh, Jesus said to John the Baptist, permitted at this time, baptize me, John, because it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus, in our place, in humanity's place, was doing all of the righteous acts that were required of humanity, and he was doing that perfectly in our place as our substitute because we have failed, but he has succeeded. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we already studied this too, about the temptations of Jesus in the desert uh, um, uh, from Satan. He completely trusted God in those moments. He refused to put God to the test, and he refused to forsake him by worshiping Satan instead. Jesus fulfilled the law of God and the promises of the prophets in his life. Uh, By the way, we're only scratching the surface of the things we could offer up here, but uh, you guys want to get to lunch at some point, so I'm just giving you a little bit of a, uh, um, a taste here. Jesus fulfilled the law of prophets in his birth, in his life, and in his death. Galatians 3, 10 and 13. For as many as are the works of the law, let me get that right, there's a lot of little words in there. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. That's us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. That's us. We didn't perform. None of the Jews performed uh, the works of the law perfectly. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was crucified on a tree, on a cross. He was hung there for the sins of those who did not keep the law of God, which is the rest of humanity. And so Pastor Colin Smith summed it up this way. He said, he fulfilled the law in his life, and he paid the penalty of the law for us in his death. And so Jesus' relationship to God's law, he is the law fulfiller, and he takes that righteousness that he earned on our behalf and gives it to those who put their trust in Jesus. Isn't that great news? So it's no longer my record, my failing record that counts against me. It's Jesus' perfect record that counts for me. And so imagine, you know, if, if you had a resume, again, you could submit your resume with your failings, or you could submit Christ's righteous resume as to the authority as to why you should be granted into Christ or God's presence. And I would rather go with Jesus' resume than my own, and I'm sure you would too. Jesus summed it up this way to sort of put the icing on the cake here in Luke 24. He tells his disciples after his resurrection, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's the entire Old Testament. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. A couple things on that. Wouldn't that have been uh, an amazing Bible study? Where Jesus is like, guys, sit down. Let me show you some stuff here. And he walks them through every section uh, in God's word 
and shows them that right there, that's about me. Turn over a couple more pages. That right there, that's about me. And the disciples are like, no way. And so you see Jesus is the fulfillment of God's law. A couple of things here. If, if you have not come to put your trust in Jesus Christ yet, and Christ alone, not religion, not yourself, not your philosophies, not your hopes for being a better person in the future, but just put your faith in Christ. If you've never, ever done that, please pay attention. Pay attention to the evidence from the Old Testament. Jesus' coming was not like God's last-minute shot to try to win the game. It was his plan all along. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. Uh, Christ is the hope of humanity, including people right here in Hancock County and Finley. He is our hope, and we need to put our trust in him. So as lost human beings, in wondering how we can know God, how we can have the assurance that when I die, I'll go to heaven, we have to take into account how unmistakably God points to Jesus of Nazareth as the ultimate Savior. His whole human existence was planned and carried out in, a, in divinely precise detail. And so the, the point here is look to him, look to Christ, first of all, as your Savior, but also if those of us who are believers, we look to Christ as our continual Savior. I've said it before, but uh, Robert Murray McShane, uh, who was a pastor in the 1800s, he has this line, he says, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks to Christ. Take 10 looks to Christ. He's my law keeper. He is my hope. So what is Jesus' relationship to God's law? Jesus fulfilled God's law perfectly. He's the, the uh, completion of the law. All right, let's move on now to the third question. That would be our relationship to the law. What is our responsibility to God's law? Well, now we're looking at verses 19 and 20, where he talks about doing the law and then our righteousness surpassing that of the Pharisees. So first of all, we, our responsibility is to obey and to teach obedience to the least of Christ's commandments all the way through the greatest of Christ's commandments. Part of what I think Jesus is doing here is he's uh, bringing an indictment against the Pharisees who were the religious leaders of the day. They knew the law and they taught it, but they just had an external righteousness, not a true heart transformation for God. Jesus is speaking against the fake righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees because he's saying, you're the ones who annul the, the, the smallest points of the law in order to look like you're keeping the biggest points of the law. So what commandments are we to obey? As new covenant Christians, what commandments are we to obey? Are we to go back to the old covenant and keep things like, you know, different materials that we're not supposed to mix together and, you know, what I'm supposed to do with my goats and my, my sheep and all those different things? Am I supposed to do that? I hope not because I don't own goats and I don't have sheep, you know? What am I supposed to do? Well, the new covenant Christian is not bound to the law of Moses, we're not bound to the law of Moses because Jesus fulfilled it and then he set it aside. Not setting it aside in terms of disregarding it, but it's fulfilled. It's complete. Jesus is the one who kept the law of God. Romans 7, 6 says this, but now we have been released from the law, 
having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and not in oldness of the letter. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. The end of the law there, meaning Christ is the, the termination of the law. He's the fulfillment of the law, and so therefore he sets it aside. Let me give you an example. So why don't we keep the Jewish Sabbath anymore? There's some Christian groups who, thinks that, um, who think we should keep the Sabbath, the strict Sabbath, Friday night sundown, Saturday night sundown. Don't do any work. You, you got to be a law keeper. Why don't we do that anymore? Well, because Christ is our Sabbath rest. My rest is in Christ. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 through 30. Hebrews chapter 4. Jesus is my Sabbath rest. The principle of Sabbath rest endures, but Paul tells us in Romans 14 that uh, one person regards one day above another, one person regards one day alike. He didn't say, you got to go back to the law of Moses and keep the Sabbath. No, we've been released from the law. That's an example. Why don't we keep Jewish festivals? I mean, why don't we do a, a traditional Passover here? Why aren't we uh, doing the, the Feast of Booths? And why aren't we celebrating Pentecost? I mean, the Old Testament says we're supposed to do that because I've been released from the law. Christ is the fulfillment of those. And I hide myself in Christ. All that was prefiguring Jesus. And so I find freedom in Jesus Christ. So if I'm not, to, if I'm not bound to keep the Old Testament the old covenant, I should say, what then do I obey? Well, now we obey the law of Christ, which is the law of love and his specific New Testament teachings. So Matthew 22 would be helpful here. Verses 37 through 40, you shall love the Lord your God. You can go to the next slide. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And so what am I bound to um, obey from the Old Testament? I would say those things which are repeated under the new covenant. Uh, I love God. I love my neighbor. Those are the things that I obey. And then obviously the, the teachings of Christ. That's what we have in the New Testament and in the Gospels and in the continuing teaching through the apostles in the New Testament letters. Also in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always even to the end of the age. Jesus did not tell his apostles to teach further disciples to obey the law of Moses. He said, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And so that's what we have in the New Testament. Okay. All right. Uh, if this uh, issue is a bit perplexing to you, don't worry. I had one doozy of a time on Thursday trying to figure all this stuff out. I was going to Pastor Drew. I was like, Dewey, help me figure this stuff out. And so these things take some time to process through. So if you have further questions after today's sermon, I'd love to sit down and sort of wrap with you about uh, what does these things mean. But we're not bound to the law of Moses. We're bound to the law of Christ in the new covenant. So then Jesus goes on to say, I'm saying to you, and this is an authoritative teaching of Christ. This is now verse 20. Unless your righteousness greatly surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, their whole life was devoted 
to keeping the rules. Not only God's rules, but the rules that they had made to keep themselves from breaking God's rules. They were devout. They were, um, they were uh, faithful to all these laws. The culture esteemed them for being holy men, for wanting to follow God's laws with such uh, devotion. And so for, this must have just been a shock to the people who are sitting here listening. Our righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees and the scribes? Like, wow. Remember how I said to you earlier that you're going to feel worse today before you feel better? That's why. And if you really want to feel bad, go to chapter 5, verse 48. I'll let you figure out what that means. It's like, wow, how can I, how, how, how can my righteousness surpass those of the holy men who are trying to follow God? It's quite a teaching. I think there's a few things going on here. First of all, there's a contrast between external righteousness and internal righteousness. The religious leaders are blasted by Jesus quite often, especially in chapter 23, uh, for having just an external righteousness, for just being people who appear to be righteous before God. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, don't be like the Pharisees who do their righteousness before men to be noticed. And so you see them just being all about the show. They were about external religious actions, but their hearts really weren't for God. Jesus is talking to us about an internal righteousness, which is much like is in the, the, the Beatitudes that we went through, being poor in spirit, mourning for our sin, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Those come from the inside out rather than the outside in. So external versus internal righteousness. And secondly, Jesus is talking about the contrast between a horizontal motivation to be seen by men and a vertical motivation rather to be seen by God. I want, I want God to be pleased with me. I don't care what you think. I'm not doing my religious actions to be rewarded by you. I'm doing them because I love God. To put this in further New Testament teaching, how can our righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees and scribes? Well, we need to understand justification and sanctification. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, we think about being put in a right relationship with God. Paul writes, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. What that plainly means is that you will not earn God's favor through your religious actions. You can be as devoted as the day is long, but if you're trusting in those particular uh, box checks, I've done this, I've done this, I'm the, you're not saved. You're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That was the problem with the Pharisees. It was all external. But if you put your faith in Christ, fully relying on him, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because he's your law keeper. Not you, him. Him, not you. Also, talks about our sanctification, Romans 8, 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So now it's not about self-effort. It's about Christ's accomplishment. Then he gives us the Holy Spirit 
to help us walk in actual righteousness before God. So what is the answer here? What is our responsibility to God's law? We are to obey the law of Christ, New Testament teachings, um, um, the, the first and greatest commandments, those types of things, in the power of the Holy Spirit. I no longer do it by self-effort. I do it by the Holy Spirit. So here's my admonition today. And again, we could talk a lot longer about this. I'm happy to do so if we want to set up a time to do that. Here's the point, I believe, okay? The scripture today is calling us to cooperate with God. First of all, finding your salvation in Jesus as your lawkeeper rather than trying to find your own righteousness to make you right with God. It's not going to work, okay? Don't compete with Jesus' perfection. Don't try to outdo Jesus. I'm going to be more perfect than him. Terrible plan. It's not going to happen. Trust Jesus Christ to make you right with God. He's your lawkeeper. Secondly, find your transformation in the Holy Spirit. God then gives you new desires when you come to Christ. I want to please God. I want to love my neighbor. I want to love God. I want to fulfill the commands I see in the New Testament. I want to change. I want to grow because God is doing that work in us. Let me end with this illustration. Uh, Hopefully this will bring some clarity. I found this illustration from Colin Smith, who's a fellow evangelical free church pastor in the Chicago area. He has a really cool Scottish accent, so it sounds better with him than me, but I'm going to um, give you this story to help you see the difference between trying to keep the law yourself, being condemned by the law, and trusting Christ. He said, there was a man who served time in prison because he was a thief Stealing had been his way of life, and eventually the long arm of the law caught up with him, and he did time in prison. During that time, he heard the good news of Jesus, and he was genuinely converted. When the time came for this man's release, he knew that he was going to face a great struggle. After all, his old friends were mostly thieves. He knew it was not going to be easy for him to break the pattern of life that had become ingrained in him over many years. On the first Sunday after he was released from prison, he went to church. And as he slipped into the back of this old church and looked towards the front, he saw a plaque at the front of the church with the words of the Ten Commandments written there. Of course, his eye immediately scanned down uh, to the Eighth Commandment, the one that always seemed to condemn him, you shall not steal. And in that moment, he thought to himself, that is the last thing that I need. I know my weakness. I know my failure. I know the battle that I'm going to have. But as the sermon progressed, he found that as he looked at those words, they seemed to take on a new meaning. In the past, he read them in the tone of a condemning command, you shall not steal. But now... It seemed that these words were shining out from the plaque like a glorious promise. You shall not steal. You shall not steal. You're not going to do it. And here's the reason you're not going to do it. You're a new creation in Christ. God has given you a spirit in order that the righteous requirements of the law may be fulfilled in you as you walk. Not according to the desires of the flesh, but according to the desires of the spirit. And Colin Smith ends by saying this. Do you see that when you come to a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives you his spirit 
so that you can pursue a life that is pleasing to him. And his power is making the difference in you between a battle in which you're destined for defeat and the struggle in which you will all have ultimate victory. And so I think that helps us to see the difference between being condemned under the law, Christ is my law fulfiller, and now I go and live out what Christ would require of me. So here's the sermon today in a sentence. Jesus fulfilled God's law on our behalf and calls us to obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit.